0: Welcome to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Visit heartstrong.life forward slash login to access the notes from today and all the benefits of our membership community.
1: One to the two and two to the three. Let the world see the Holy Trinity. Let's
0: become HeartStrong Disciples of Jesus together.
1: There's a portion of scripture in Mark chapter four that uh, Joyce and I had the privilege of enjoying when we first started our journey. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, let's go across to the other side. And what he wanted to do was to cross over the Sea of Galilee. And we all know there was a storm in the midst. But what they forgot was what he said. Let's go across. We're going to go across. So, Father, we thank you this morning that we are going to cross over into some more truth today, and we don't want to forget the things that you have said to us, that you have already promised the children of Israel that they are going to go to the promised land, and yet in the midst of it all, when the storms hit, and there's a struggle in hearts and lives, and so today, Lord, we thank you for what Peter has prepared, what's on his heart. We thank you for no glitches in the internet. We thank you that we all will see and hear, not just naturally, but spiritually. And Lord, with Ken's testimony today, we thank you that you are always a healing God and we trust you in all of these things. And so for any one of us this morning that's not feeling well, we thank you right now for an infusion of robust health and we just thank you for what you're about to apportion to each and every one of us So, lord as we say all the time speak to our hearts and change our lives in jesus name amen 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 Amen.
2: thank you for that prayer pastor barry okay so the memory verse uh, for the month Uh, I'm going to read uh, this uh, verse uh, today and then hopefully I'll have one of you uh, read it uh, uh, tomorrow so it comes from Romans chapter 12 verses 1 to 2 and it says I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Great, all right. So we're gonna dive into chapter 13. And as we come to our text today, Israel is now at the border of the Negev desert and are approaching the land of the Amalekites who are the inhabitants of the area. So verse two, the chapter opens with God telling Moses to send men on this reconnaissance mission and to bring back a report. Now verse three notes that the origin of the idea as God's, because it says, according to the command of God, even though Deuteronomy chapter one, verses 20 to 25, notes that the plan to send the spies did not originate from God, but it was actually initiated by the people, and Moses accepted it. However, one man was chosen from each of the 12 tribes as spies to survey the land. Now, verses 4 to 16 go on to identify the names of all of the men chosen from each of the tribes. And we see Joshua and Caleb are two of the notable men chosen. So on to verse 17. So Moses sends these men to see what the land is like. And Moses' direction to the spies was the subtle manifestation of unbelief. Look at what he asks the spies to do. Did it really matter if the people were strong or many, or if they lived in strongholds, whether the land was good, was rich, or if they were a useful forest? When you think about it, this could have been quite, it was entirely reasonable, but, it could have been also representative of the curiosity of the whole nation. After all, they had never really seen this land. But God had already told them what the land was like. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. So we're told they went up and spied out the land. And of course, they, they to the land, saw some of the inhabitants, the produce, And they come back and this reconnaissance mission took 40 days. So we see the report of the land. They return and they say, we went to the land where you sent us. Now this seems to give a sense that they were more on a mission from Israel rather than a mission from God. But they confirm, they say it truly flows with milk and honey. So what God had promised about the land was indeed true. But then they go on to say, nevertheless. Now, nevertheless means despite all that. So how could one say we went to the land, found it good, and God's promise true, and then say, despite all of God's faithful promises? You know, look at what they say. The people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. We saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell there. The Amorites, the Canaanites. All the land is taken up. So it's so hard to imagine a report more unbelieving and unfaithful to God than this. It's a report that recognizes the Faithfulness of God's promise, the truth of his word, and yet says, despite all that. So, whatever the exact nature of God's testing in the minds and hearts of these spies, it is clear that they had as a whole failed the test. So, in verse 30, we see Caleb now objecting, and he quiets the people and commands them to immediately trust and obey God, and to take the land, because God has already made them, uh, made them able to. Now, it certainly took a lot of courage for this man to stand against this tide of unbelief, of doubt, and all of this, despite all that kind of attitude. But Look at the response from the other men, The unbelieving response, who went with Caleb and Joshua, of course, was this, important combination of truth, lies, and exaggeration. So they gave this bad report. So it was true from a human perspective to say they are stronger than us. But to say we are not able to go up against the people was a lie. It was true that they had gone through the land, but to say a land that devours its inhabitants was a lie. Look at verse 33. Each of the statements, like all the men we saw in it are men of great stature, giants, we are like grasshoppers. We're all terrible exaggerations. Unbelief often presents itself as being factual or practical or down to earth. Yet, the most factual, practical, and down-to-earth thing we can do is to trust the word of the living God. Their unbelief was not according to the facts, but despite the facts. And fear not only distorts the truth and deters faith, it also devours people's judgment. So here, this passage actually revealed the fear of the spies, which provoked them to lie. So we see Israel rebelling, and they moan at this dilemma. Why? Well, they were confronted with two reports. So two of the 12 spies, specifically Caleb and Joshua, said, let's go up and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the other 10 spies said, what God promised about the land is true. Nevertheless, the natives of the land are too mighty. We cannot overcome them despite what God has promised. So significantly, we see two groups of men who could see the exact same sites, the same grapes, the same man, the same land, the same cities, One came away in faith, the other filled with the sense of certain doom. So ultimately, faith or unbelief does not spring from circumstances or environment, but from the hearts, which really only God must change. Note that 12 men were sent, leaders from each tribe, So they truly represented the people of Israel. And the lack of faith of the majority of the spies was a lack of faith on behalf of the entire nation. So we see the people weep that night. So unbelief made them think of God's gift of the promised land as something evil. So Israel here stood barely a year out of Egypt on the threshold of the promised land. And now God invited them to take the land and they rebelled through this morning. So verse 2 says, the people wept that night on hearing that their enemies were formidable. And we look at this morning and it has a distinct character. There were four things to note. The first it was, mourning because God would not make it easy. And we often somehow expect that of God and resent adversity in our own lives, forgetting the example of Jesus who had it harder than any one of us and whom we are not above. The second thing we note about the mourning is it was, was filled with this resentful attitude towards God, blaming him for their problems denying that he is a loving father who cares for his children. The third was, it was mourning that gave into this feeling of unbelief and fear. And the fourth was, it was mourning that allowed feelings to rule in one's life instead of faith in the living God. So here, their clinging to the feelings of fear and mourning was plain sin and rebellion. And their feelings did not by any means justify their rebellion. So Israel starts to murmur or complain. So the challenge of faith seemed so great and so grievous that they would rather have died then go on with what God had for them. Look at what they say, if only we had died in the land of Egypt. They even say, why has God brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? So the unbelieving here in this group justified their unbelief on the basis of concern for their wives and children. They were angry with God, accusing him of plotting their murder. This was a deep state of rebellion. God, who could do no evil, was called a murderer by his own people. Tragically, for that generation, God would give them what their rebellious, unbelieving hearts wanted. They would die in the wilderness. And their children, who they talked about would actually inherit the promised land. Look at what they go on to say. Would it not better be for us to return to Egypt? This was certainly not better. In the first 10 chapters of Numbers, God led Israel through this process intending to change them from a slave-minded people to a promised land people. Here, they completely reverted back to that slave mentality, preferring slavery than a walk of faith. What Israel rejected here, make no mistake, was a walk of faith. If God was going to lead them into this deeper trust than they had before, they wanted no part of it. Look at what they say in verse 4. So they said to one another, Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Notice how man-centered this rebellion was because they say in verse 4, they said to one another. This this decision was made among themselves, believing the majority, their majority vote had more wisdom than God. They're going to say, let us select a leader. So they didn't like God's selection. They wanted a leader who would truly represent them In all their rebellion against God. So this was pure rebellion. They rejected God's plan, his leaders, and the land that he promised. Look at the reaction of Moses and Aaron. Well, they just fall on their faces. They simply prostrate themselves down in prayer. They knew that they had to cry out to God for a miracle if Israel was to be spared. But more interestingly is the reaction of Joshua and Caleb. These two faithful spies now attempt to persuade the people. They tore off their clothes showing utter grief and mourning. And they reminded of course the people of the faithfulness of God's promise that the land would be good and it was. Why? Because they saw it with their own eyes. If God promised that they could take possession of it, then they could also trust that promise too. So Joshua and Caleb, of course, appealed to the will of the people, asking them not to rebel against God, but to return to God. The people of Israel, of course, didn't have to give in to these, their feelings of fear, of anger to God or of unbelief. They could have chosen to submit and trust God This, however, was a matter of, or in this case, a lack of faith in God. What was their response? Well, the response of the people was to stone Joshua and Caleb. And it's incredible that they threatened to kill those in leadership who call them to a deeper trust of life in God. What happens? Well, we see now God appearing, but he does not even speak to the nation. The nation was past hearing him. He speaks to Moses alone. And many in rebellion wonder why they don't hear the voice of God anymore. Well, why should they? If they are rejecting what God has already said, do they think they can be open to what more he might say? So God poses this rhetorical question how long will they not believe me with all the signs I have performed among them Israel's rejection of God makes no sense this that's the crux of the issue the problem with unbelief isn't a lack of proof there's plenty of that the problem with unbelief is a will that is contrary to God Faith isn't an issue of the head, but of the heart. Unbelief isn't rooted in facts, but in desire. So God says in verse 12, I will strike them and disinherit them. And he tells Moses, I'm going to make you a nation greater and mightier. This was a dramatic offer to Moses that God would disinherit the current nation, and because Moses was faithful, God would make Moses' descendants into the nation of promise. Now, we must regard this as a real offer from God. God does not speak with make-believe words. If Moses were to do nothing, this plan of God would probably have gone into effect. The nation would perish, and somehow... God would start all over again with Moses. And the new nation would be, as God says, greater and mightier than the present one. Just as happened to Moses here, there will come times in our walk with God when we come to what seems like a contradiction between what is and what should be. Our experience will not line up with what God says is true and what is the expression of his will for us. But at that moment, we need to hold fast to what we know to be true regardless of what we are seeing, hearing or feeling. Look at the reaction of Moses. Moses on this offer does not entertain that offer for a moment. Instead, he pleads for his nation. He loved them despite their rebellion. Moses goes on to say, the Egyptians will hear it, God, for your might, you brought these people up from among them. So Moses' zeal for God's glory was evident. He knew if God wiped out the present nation, and started all over again with himself, it would be a black mark on God's reputation before the nations, especially Egypt. Perhaps then the nations, he said, would claim as in verse six, the God of Israel was not able to bring this people to the land which he swore to give them. So Moses brought God's promise before him in verse 16. He begged God to give the nations sorry, to not give the nations any opportunity to think that the God of Israel was not true to his own promises. In verse 17, he says, and now I pray, let the power of my God be great. So here, Moses glories in the power of God, but asks that God use his power by showing mercy to this rebellious nation. And then he goes on to say in verse 17, just as you have spoken God. Now the list following in verses 18 to 19 is almost this quote from the words of self-revelation God spoke to Moses way back in Exodus chapter 34, verse six to eight. And look at what uh, is noted here in verse 18 on. It says, long-suffering, God is long-suffering abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty. What Moses basically was saying, God, you have revealed yourself to me by your word. Your word declares who you are. Now, God, please act towards Israel according to who you have declared yourself to be by your word. In verse 19, Moses goes on to say, pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy. So Moses knew God's glory and appealed to it. He knew God's power and promise and appealed to it. And he knew God's mercy and appealed to it. This was a just a spectacular example of intercession. What made it spectacular was not Moses' method, like appealing to God's power, glory, and promise, but Moses' heart. Moses was totally others-centered, not concerned for his own glory, and of course concerned only for Israel. So he reflected the heart of God Towards his own people. God's response. God says, I have pardoned according to your word. The heart of Moses and his method of intercession were successful. These are sweet words for any sinner to hear. I have pardoned you. And Moses goes on to say, according to your, sorry, God says, according to your word, Moses. I have pardoned. So Moses' prayer mattered. Now we may not understand the relationship between the eternal sovereign plan of God and our prayers, but we must know it is no game. God never wanted Moses to think of it as a game and wanted Moses to at least think that his prayers had directly affected the outcome. And we should be praying as if life and death or heaven and hell would be decided or influenced by our prayers. Verse 23, it says, those who put God to the test who rebelled against his promise would not see the land as pronounced here. But look at the high praise that God heaped on Caleb in verse 24. He says, my servant Caleb, he has a different spirit. He has followed me fully, and I will bring him into the land. So Caleb's stand of faith seemed seemed futile when Israel rejected him, but it was richly rewarded here by God. And God, in verse 25, says, Tomorrow, turn and move into the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. So God had brought them to the threshold of the promised land, and they rebelled against him, and they did not enter. So, of course, it would take more wilderness training until they were a people ready to live in the promised land. In verse 29, we see the deaths now sentence on the rebels. God basically declared that the current nation would die in the wilderness and never see the promised land. It was as if God said to them, you didn't want it when it was offered to you, so now you will never have it. And note uh, chapter 14, verse 2, it's when they said, if only we had died in the wilderness. Well, that's exactly what happened. God would not give them that desire. Sorry, what God would now give them that desire. So if they preferred death to a walk of faith, God will actually make that their destiny. And of course, as in verse 30, it says, except for Caleb and Joshua, these men of faith were the glorious exceptions. Not even Moses and Aaron were accepted. And then God says in verse 31, but your little ones, I will bring in. So when excusing their unbelief, Israel had claimed concern for their children accusing God of wanting to murder them. Now, ironically, their children would inherit that land while the people themselves would perish in the wilderness. And it goes on to say, they shall know the land which you despised. Now, we may well imagine many in Israel objecting, saying, God, we didn't despise the land. We wanted it. We were just afraid. But they did despise it because, as much as anything, it was a land for people of faith. The spies, of course, representing the nation, failed the test for 40 days. And now the nation would be tested for 40 years. And they would have to come purified, for uh, purified, and ready to inherit the promised land. But only after unbelief and rebellion. And perished in the wilderness. And this turning point in Israel's history is really an essential lesson for every believer. And it's actually to us, trumpeted to us in Psalm chapter ninety-five, verses seven to eleven, and in Psalm one hundred six, verse twenty-four to twenty-seven. Hebrews chapter three, verse seven, all the way to chapter four, verse sixteen, makes it clear. God has a place of rest and promise for every believer to enter into it. And it can only be entered by faith. The man of unbelief, self-reliance, and self-focus can never enter into God's rest and abundance. So in verse 36, we see the death sentence and aftermath. The men whom Moses sent out to the land died by plague before God. So if the death of the unbelieving generation in the wilderness would take 38 years, the death of the 10 unfaithful spies was immediate. Well, in verse 39, it says the people mourned greatly. They were indeed sorry. Many people are sorry for the consequence of their sin, but they are not so sorry as to turn their hearts to a genuine trust in God. So in verse 40, it tells us that the people rose early in the morning. They went up to the top of the mountain and they say, here we are, and we will go up. We have sinned. Well, what was all this about? As as I'm wrapping up, Israel wanted to make it better with works, but their hearts were not changed. God calls it presumption. They were trying to atone for their sins through actions rather than looking to God for forgiveness. They still didn't get it that the presence, protection, and power of God were everything to them. It could not work. And Moses spoke rightly. He says, this will not succeed. So some of us in the church today make similar mistakes. We want the good life and think it has to be had in religious morality. So we do what seems right, because we see it as an investment that will pay off big in dividends. And we have no time for the relationship side of Christianity. So all the talk of fellowship with Jesus is kind of lost on us. It's too abstract, too spiritual. We seek to be good moral people because of the payoff Not because it's motivated by a love of Christ or a concern for the holiness of God. Christianity isn't a moral code. Its message isn't a call to adopt a religion. Christianity is Christ, an invitation to have an eternal love affair with God. And in verse 43, it says, then the Canaanites who dwelt in that mountain came down, attacked them, and drove them back as far as far. So it did not succeed because God was now not with them. They made this futile attempt in the flesh to accomplish what they had rejected by faith. And of course, it ended in defeat. It was now back to the wilderness. So in ending, when God was with them, they did not think it was enough. Now was that God was not with them, they thought they could do it, but they failed. So that's the end of uh, this devotion. I'd like to just dismiss those that have to leave. And uh, Pastor George, if you want to just pray for those that are leaving, and uh, we'll begin with the questions and answers.
1: I do. Well, that's absolutely an astounding amount of teaching this morning, but our hearts are stirred to be people
2: that have great faith, that we want to be Caleb's and Joshua's. Amen. Amen. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning's teaching. We pray blessing upon all of those that have to leave and go off to do their day. God, may they just see Everything around them today, absolutely different, but full of the eyes of faith of what you want to do in this world, what you want to do through their lives in Jesus name. Amen.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Have you become an official member of our HeartStrong community? Visit heartstrong.life and click membership to sign up. Once you've registered, you will receive an email with links and tips for how to engage everything that HeartStrong has to offer. As a member, you will have access to so much incredible discipleship content found on the members page, such as all of our weekly Bible study events, a monthly training plan with disciplines and practices and discipleship questions to help guide you on your discipleship journey. We also have our most recent Bible study video, all of our teacher Bible study notes and an on demand video archive of all of our Bible studies that we have ever done. And lastly, every month we create and curate content to encourage you on your discipleship journey. So, what are you waiting for? Visit heartstrong.life and join today. Let's become heartstrong disciples together.